This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. Here we go with another jam-packed show this morning with the latest on the flooding disasters in British Columbia. It was an amazing effort by the people of Abbotsford last night, volunteers working through the night to build a sandbag wall around the critical water pump station there. It's still working this morning, pumping water out of that floodplain. The work is now on to clear blocked highways and evacuated stranded travelers. The army is on the way. Federal Public Safety Minister Bill Blair announcing this morning the deployment of Canadian Forces Air Support to assist the evacuation effort and support existing uh, support supply chain routes in the province. That is good news. Still many questions, though, being asked this morning about the provincial response to this emergency. Why were there no earlier warnings to the public? Still no provincial state of emergency. No deployment of that cell phone alert messaging system. Uh, let's discuss now with my guest, uh, Liberal MLA Mike Morris. He is the official opposition critic for public safety. We did ask for the public safety minister, Mike Farnworth, this morning. He was not available. Mike, thank you for coming on today. Oh, my pleasure, Mike. Okay, first of all, Mike, let's start with the state of emergency in British Columbia or lack thereof. I'm getting like deja vu on this thing, going back to the wildfires with the provincial reluctance to declare a state of emergency. Here we go again around the mulberry bush on this one. Let me play a clip here for you of Mike Farnworth, the public safety minister yesterday. He was asked, why is there no provincial state of emergency declared in B.C.? Here's what he had to say. I can tell you that a, uh, a province-wide state of emergency is very much uh, on, the, uh, on the table. Uh, tomorrow we have a cabinet meeting and I will be going forward uh, with uh, my colleagues with a full briefing to cabinet and I fully expect uh, decisions uh, will uh, be coming out of that, uh, that cabinet meeting. I do wait for a cabinet meeting the next day instead of declaring it now. This is an emergency right now. And you've got this guy saying, well, wait, well, we're going to have a meeting about it tomorrow. Mike Morris, your thoughts? Yeah, you're right. Uh, you don't need to call a cabinet meeting. The minister has full authority to call a state of emergency any time he feels that a emergency is uh, is imminent or in existence. And, of course, we th there's no doubt that we do have an emergency in British Columbia here. It should have been declared a couple of days ago at the, at the very latest. And, uh, and you know, it's I, I don't understand why he uh, is so hesitant to call a state of emergency during these uh, emergencies that we've had over the past uh, year or so. Yeah, I, this is very similar to the wildfire situation where he dragged his feet for, for many days on that one, too. And I just don't I, I, I don't get it. Like, I, I'm wondering what the downside is to it. Like, is he scared of is he uh, is he worried about frightening people or or desensitizing people to, to the scale of the emergencies that we're facing right now? Like, what what is up with that? Yeah, I hope not. You know, there's no downside to declaring a state of emergency. But what it does, it provides that reinforcement and that, that confidence for the, the men and women that are already out there on the front line that have put in probably days now of working with very little sleep, trying to do the best they can 
with resources that they have available to them. But a state of emergency would open up all kinds of uh, opportunities to bring in additional resources, give the authority to local uh, ground managers to bring in whatever they need to get the job done. You know, when you see, uh, you know, I heard uh, on the news this morning people talking about a lack of resources to try and evacuate the people from Sumas Prairie and the volunteers that have been working all night there. Um, We should have had people on those lines uh, two days ago. Yeah, I mean, you've got people who are basically hiring their own helicopters to get their loved ones out of uh, out of the area, out of Hope, places like Hope. And if the, you know, the, one of the powers to the province under a provincial emergency order would be to requisition some of these resources and use helicopters and use airlift uh, to get people out of there and not just people who have the money and the wherewithal and the connections to, to rent a helicopter for themselves. Like, I just don't see why this sort of hand-wringing and waiting to declare a provincial state of emergency. I just think that is bizarre, and I believe it will happen today, but I agree with you. It should have happened a couple of days ago. And speaking to public safety critic Mike Morris at the B.C. Legislature, let me ask you about the emergency alert system on our cell phones. People are familiar with this system now. It's been tested in the past. They have the ability now to send out these widespread text message alerts to every cell phone in the province. Do you think that should have been implemented? Uh, by all means, it should have been. You know, this was something that we were looking at when we were still in government. It's a collaborative effort between governments right across Canada, between media outlets, uh, wireless carriers. It's a tried and true system. It can be geographically targeted. There's a number of things we can do with this technology, but uh, you know, th- this should be in use right across the province. It should have been in use uh, you know, years ago. Yeah, there was a scheduled test of that system that was supposed to happen this afternoon. So the original plan was at 1.55 p.m. this afternoon, everyone was going to get a text message on their phone to test this alert system. And the province has now canceled it. They canceled that test. And the reason is they didn't want to cause confusion. So they didn't want to do this test this afternoon and people may get confused if they're supposed to evacuate or something. You know, like why? I I just find that so ironic that they would cancel this test because they want to avoid confusion because there's a real emergency going on. You know, they should have used this when the real emergency started. Well, they they should have. Uh, Like I said, it's tried and true technology. It's been in use uh, by many uh, jurisdictions right across the country. Um, and there's no reason why we couldn't have had it uh, up and running by now. I don't know whether it's a lack of funding within emergency management BC or what the actual reasons are for that. But, uh, you know, geez, you know, time and time again over the last few, few years, we've seen the fires, we've seen flooding. Uh, we need that system in place now. Far- Farnworth was asked about this yesterday. Why was this system not put in place and used when we have it available? And here's what he had to say about it yesterday. As we said, uh, the Alert BC uh, system is uh, something that we have been working on. It is in place for tsunamis. We have already publicly said that it is our intention to have uh, it in place uh, for next uh, season's fire season, uh, starting in the, uh, the central part of the, uh, the province. Um, it is one tool. Um, it is not a silver bullet. Well, you know, okay, they want to use it for tsunamis. I mean, this is basically like a tsunami in a lot of ways for the people who are affected by it. I mean, use it. You got the technology. Go ahead and use it. And then he says, oh, we'll we'll use it next year during the forest fires. We just went through an absolutely devastating and brutal forest fire season. 
I mean, these guys yeah. know that this. Go ahead, go ahead, Mike. What are your thoughts? No, I agree. There's no, there's no feasible reason why they can't use it. Like I said, it's you can geographically target the messages that come out in that. So you could have alerted the people in Abbotsford and Sumas area. You could have alerted the people throughout the Fraser Valley. Uh, as to what was coming down the pike with the weather system, with other things, and to take precautions like Washington State did, like the traffic advisory that uh, Alberta put out. Um, but uh, BC was quite silent on that front. One of the things that I, I find, I, I just don't like the, the tone uh, that I'm hearing from the provincial government, too, because quite often it seems when when the minister is asked these tough questions, he deflects and he says, well, it's really not the province's responsibility this is a local government decision to assess the situation on the ground, declare a state of emergency, and then ask for help if they need it. I mean, he says that over and over. I think I've heard him say it a dozen times in the last two days, that this is a local municipal jurisdiction and responsibility. I don't, yeah. I don't get that either. I mean, this should be all hands on deck for everybody. I mean, we got like the mayor of Abbotsford doing heroic work last night trying to save his community. The mayor of Princeton actually putting on a yellow safety vest and directing traffic at the height of the flood coming into his town. I mean, they're respond- these local people are responding, but I, I don't really see the leadership from the province. But your thoughts? Yeah, no, I agree with you there. You know, the, the, this province, this government has had um, a history of deflecting to other jurisdictions on a number of issues over the past, uh, well, since they've been in government. And, and that's wrong. The buck stops with them. They are responsible for the health and safety of British Columbians, uh, uh, ultimately, and they need to make sure all the systems are put in place. You know, we have heroes out there with these mayors that you're speaking about and with the fire departments and the police services and the volunteers that are working, uh, you know, overtime to try and resolve the issues out there. They need the support of this government behind them more, now more than ever. Mike, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. The images that are coming out of this flooding disaster can be inspiring and heartbreaking sometimes at the same time. If you see some of the images of flooded out farms in the Fraser Valley and farmers desperately trying to save their livestock, I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. Some of the videos that came out yesterday of farmers actually uh, using boats and anything they can get their hands on that floats to help get their cows out of the barns, get them to safety. It really is amazing. Uh, the Fraser Valley region is ground zero for agriculture, and a lot of it is underwater right now, and the race is on to save save people but save their livestock too. Now have a listen to this. This is Abbotsford Mayor Henry Braun uh, talking yesterday about that evacuation order in that part of the city and saying, I'm also talking about the farms that are affected and the livestock that are threatened. Have a listen here. The message here is tonight, if you are still on Sumas Perry, you need to leave to get out of the area. Um, I, I know it's hard for farmers to leave their livestock, but people's lives are more important to me right now than livestock and chickens. Um, and we will deal with the rest come morning to see what has transpired. But we felt we needed to alert our public on Sumas Prairie that this is imminent. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Holder Schwichtenberg. He is the chair of the board of the BC Dairy Association, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Holger, thank you for coming on today. Yeah, good morning. Holger, what can you tell me about the situation, especially in the Fraser Valley now that's uh, affected by the flooding and the impact on, on dairy farms operation and operations there? 
Well, what I can tell you is that is an evolving situation that's changing by the hour. And we as an industry are trying to be as helpful as, can, as we can to get the farmers, their families, and as many livestock to safety um, as best we can. How many farms are, are in that area? Um, I, um, there's about, there's six, 59 farms, I believe, under an evacuation order. And wow. the, in the Sumas area, there is, a, I believe, a close to 150 to 160 dairy farms. Wow, that's a lot. So how many, how many uh, animals do you think are impacted there? Yeah, Mike, Mike, I can't, yeah, I'm not privy to that, um, but it's in the hundreds. Yeah. So I can, or, yeah, yeah, thousands. And, and how are people dealing with that? Like, do you have a farm in that area yourself? Are you impacted? No, I'm not impacted. I'm out in Agassiz where we are high and dry, but we Good. have, um, the farms in our area have been helping by, I had 40 cows, 45 animals dropped off at my farm last night by farmers with their trucks, um, looking to find homes for the animals that need to leave the affected area. Oh, man, that's got to be heartbreaking. What, what are you hearing from people when these farmers show up and ask you for help? What kind of stories are they telling you? What are, they, what are you hearing? Well, they're, they're telling us they need to move them now, and wow. it's actually quite amazing. You have people dropping off cows, and you just take them. You don't ask a lot of questions. You, don't, you barely know the truckers, and they, they drop off the cattle, and they race back to Abbotsford to get more. Wow. Okay, we saw amazing video footage yesterday of, of people trying to rescue their animals and people in boats leading cows through the water. I mean, this is this is amazing. What is the challenge there? I mean, you got to get cows out of those out of those flooded buildings. Well you, well, you have to get the cows out of the flooded buildings. You have to get the cows to dry ground, but you also have to get cows back to somewhere where they can be milked. And that means taking, obviously, off, getting them out of the out of the Sumash area onto farms like myself, who can then milk the cows for the owners. Yeah, because I think a cow, somebody told me yesterday, a cow has to be milked twice a day, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, yeah, you, you don't want to stop that. Right, right. And what kind of challenge does that pose now in terms of, like, getting that milk milk out of there, too? Well, we have, yeah, so the 40 cows that came to my place, I have a bit of room. I'm quite densely stocked now. I've got a robot farm, but these cows from a, came from another robot farm to mine. And except for some noise, they've actually settled in quite nicely. And we're just dealing with 40 more cows in our barn right now. Glad yeah, to help us as we can. Speaking to Holger Schwichtenberg, he is the chair of the board of the BC Dairy Association about the, the crisis in the Fraser Valley, especially in the Abbotsford region. Lots of dairy farms there. I mean, do we have the capacity in the province to, to where are you going to put all these cows if they can get them out of there? That's a very strong question, Mike. Yeah, we'll do the best that we can. And every farmer that I know that has room has stepped up to the plate. And, you know, if push comes to shove, Mike, and we need to bring another 30 cows here, we would make that work somehow. Because we need to, we, as an industry, we're resilient. We need, to, we need to help where we can as best we can. Yeah, have any animals uh, actually been lost here in this crisis? I'm not. I'm not sure, Mike. What's happened there yet? Like I said, it's a it's an evolving situation. Get the farmers out, get their families out, and try and save as many of the animals as possible. Is what we're trying to do right now. Um, we'll, and and we'll see we'll see how things develop. Yeah, are you getting the help you need from the province and other authorities? Like, what do you guys need right now? Um, we're getting the help that we need. We're getting the help, especially from fellow farmers who are stepping up to the plate by providing trucks and trailers and 
and and the farmers stepping up and taking the cattle and we're working together with emergency services with the district of Ab- whoever can help it's, it's to get the animals out of there as quickly and efficiently as we can Holger, good luck to you. Thank you for taking the time in a busy day here. I'll let you get back to work. Thanks for doing this. Thank you very much. Take care. Okay, Holger Schwichtenberg, chair of the board of the BC Dairy Association. Hundreds of cattle, cows in that region affected by the flooding. Uh, Let's also talk to Kevin Boone, general manager of the BC Cattlemen's Association, representing the cattle ranchers in BC. Kevin, thanks for coming on again. No problem, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, it's got to be heartbreaking for a guy like you in the in agriculture to hear about other farmers who are struggling to save their animals. What goes through your mind when you hear that? Yeah, and so, you know, we, we've been here with fires. Um, flooding is totally different for these guys, and it's a different emergency. I totally, uh, you know, I know Hulger, and I know what they're going through, and I think this is one of the things that we see so strong is the farmers and agriculture as a whole uh, coming together to help. One of the things that's putting these guys in such a uh, awkward position as well is there's no routes out for them to move those cattle. Like in the interior here where most of our cattle are, we haven't been severely impacted as they have down in that lower mainland, but we can't even get in to help move the cattle we can't get in to say bring them to our place. We we there's dairies out here we can help. There's none of that uh, opportunity there. So it's really what can they do for themselves and how can we help uh, in other ways? And and that is where agriculture becomes very strong because they don't you know the reason they're in agriculture and especially livestock agriculture is really the love of the animals. And so to see them in jeopardy, it's not just their business that is in peril, but it's what they've spent generations uh, building genetics and building it their family farms. And and it's very uh, heartbreaking, and we know the stress, and we know what they're going through. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a very challenging time for these individuals. Yeah, no, it's a devastating situation for sure. I think you summed that up very, very well. And I think that the key point that you hit on there is those blocked highways, right? That those supply chains are blocked. Uh, the transportation routes are, are not usable. So that is just complicating matters further. You mentioned that in the cattle ranching sector in British Columbia, you guys have been fortunate in the interior with not a lot of flooding affecting these cattle ranches. But what about those supply chains and moving, moving stuff around? Could that cause a problem here in the days ahead? Well, it's, uh, you know, I think the one thing is um, in the supply chains is there's multiple uh, areas of supply that are coming in. And, you know, we're seeing uh, situations out in the interior down in the lower mainland of panic buying and panic hoarding. And I would like to really say to people, settle down, uh, take a deep breath. Uh, There's other ways and other means around a lot of that uh, coming into the lower mainland is going to have to come up through routes in the through the states or or through um you know the sea and and that that will be worked out uh supply chains can be adjusted most of the interior it'll come from the east there'll be supply there don't panic uh at at this point in time the bigger uh, i think issue for that uh supply chain is getting feed for that livestock for us um the, the grains and the supplements and the um, feed sources, other than the forage for the cattle, but the, 
the poultry and the pork that require those drains, we don't have a rail system or a road system coming in from the major supply areas to get them. So they're going to have to look for alternate areas. So it's not just getting those cattle and poultry and, and pork uh, out of harm's way of the water and onto dry ground, but keeping a substantial amount of feed in front of them. So we're going to see, I know with, with dairy, for example, where they're going to have to change their rations somewhat. That's going to affect their, their production. It's going to affect, uh, you know, somewhat maybe down the road, the health of those animals. So this event, the water will subside, but the effects will continue and uh, it's very hard to predict what they are, uh, but they're getting prepared for what uh, may come, working very close with the feed supply agents and uh, looking at the alternatives that are out there so that they're able to sustain as much as they can. And animal welfare and animal health is definitely at the top of their uh, priority list. All right, speaking of Kevin Boone, BC Cattlemen's Association General Manager. Kevin, last last question for you. As you talk about those supply chains, those comp- uh, critical supply chain routes and f- to get animal feed in primarily, what should be the highest prior- priority there in getting these supply chains back up and running? Well, you know, we definitely have to get our road system uh, back working. I think, too, it's important that when we do get some access points there, that people understand that there is a critical need for uh, critical traffic only, uh, a high priority to essential services. And and it's not a time to go out and and look. This is a time to stay at home and and to uh, observe from afar. Um, I'd also say, you know, one of the biggest uh, frustrations is is uh, can be social media, uh, and you know, it's I get people want to know and that they they want to do it, but it's a rampant source of rumors. I always said, you know, Facebook uh, happily spreading rumors for a lot of years, sort of deal, because people don't necessarily it's not necessarily accurate. And so it's important okay. that we listen to credible media, credible sources to get the facts. And this puts some uh, definite responsibility on, on the shoulders of the likes of you, Mike, to make sure you do have that, that information. And so those critical things as we rebuild and as these guys get the things going, again, is making sure that they have a good quality and a, 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 a healthy supply of feed for these we know that some of the uh, livestock will be more susceptible to loss, like poultry. Uh, the cows, okay. uh, they got long legs. They can walk through that water a bit, but uh, we've got to get them good, healthy, dry feed. Kevin, thank you for coming on. Appreciate it. You bet. And good luck to all those guys down there. Uh, we're, we're here to help wherever. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. 
complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. They can get it. All right, welcome back to the show. It's another super busy news day on the flooding emergency files in British Columbia. Just to give you a heads up on that and what's coming later today, 12.45 p.m. this afternoon. That's when we expect a news conference with Premier John Horgan and other officials. And that's when we anticipate a, an official provincial state of emergency will be declared in British Columbia. Our own Keith Baldry confirming that earlier on the show. 12.45 this afternoon. That's when you can expect that state of emergency to be declared. And we expect a lot more information to come out of that news conference this afternoon as well. I believe this will be the first time we've heard directly from John Horgan during this crisis. Of course, he's going through those cancer treatments right now. So that'll be a must watch. And 12.45 CKNW will bring you that live this afternoon in the Jill Bennett Show. So make sure you keep it locked here for all the continuing developments on these a huge story. Uh, the other breaking news today is lots of it today. Uh, the federal government set to drop that negative COVID test requirement for travelers re-entering Canada after a 72-hour trip. So people who want to do that dash down south of the border to fill up on groceries or gas, it uh, looks like you'll get some good news on that with the dropping of the requirement of that PCR test. That's going to be confirmed here shortly, we expect. Also, the Army being called out. Uh, the federal minister responsible indicating a, a short time ago that uh, Canadian Forces air support will be deployed to British Columbia to help clear supply routes and evacuate people who are still stuck. So make sure you keep it locked here for all the continuing developments on the floods uh, today right here on CKNW. Right now, though, let's talk about another issue that is in the headlines at the moment. And this is a story that we've talked about on the show before. And it's one of those eternal debates, I guess, in our province. And that is indoors versus outdoor cats. Now, I've got, there's a, an outdoor cat in our neighborhood. I love this little cat. He wanders around the neighborhood and I don't see any mice or rats around the neighborhood with this cat kind of on patrol. So I kind of think it's good. Now, I'm well aware, though, that these cats can be killing machines when it comes to birds. We all know that, and that's that's not good. But check this out now. Outdoor cats likely to blame for the spread of a potentially deadly parasite. That is the result of a new study just out from UBC. Let's discuss that now with my guest, Dr. Amy Wilson, who's the study lead adjunct professor at UBC's Department of Forest and Conservation Sciences. She's a veterinarian. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Dr. Wilson, thank you for doing this today. Yeah, no, thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot for being here. Um, So outdoor cats, tell me about this. uh, This is the first time I've heard about something like this. So outdoor cats potentially carrying this parasite. What is this all about? Yeah, so Toxoplasma gondii is a protozoal parasite. It's related to malaria. I think a lot of people would be familiar with it when doctors are recommending that pregnant people don't uh, change litter boxes. This is the parasite. So essentially, um, it's interesting because this parasite is capable of affecting any warm-blooded animal. So bats, we found it in wombats, deer, monkeys, and it commonly impacts people as well. So 30 to 50% of the global population will be infected with this parasite. So we're obviously, we're interested because there are significant health um, problems of, with having toxoplasma, and I'll get into that in a second. But what we did is we compiled infection data across hundreds of studies 
and wildlife across the globe. And we looked at the relationship between infection and the habitat that the animals lived in. And what we found is that wildlife that live in areas with higher human density um, have higher infection rates, which are going to be most likely driven by an increase of the input of the eggs into the environment by free-roaming cats and also by a loss of the habitat that kind of protects us from these eggs that the cats are um, putting into the environment. So basically what's important to understand about toxo, because I definitely understand most people don't understand the the kind of disease risks associated when you have this nice little cat kind of running around the neighborhood. But ultimately, all toxoplasma infections come from a domestic or a wild cat. They're the only animals that can spread toxoplasma into the environment through the eggs in their feces, which they do intermittently. There are millions of these eggs, and they live for years in the soil and water, just just, um, sitting there. Any animal that ingests these eggs will be infected if they're warm-blooded. And then even if those infected animals are eaten by a predator or a person eating infected meat, then they become infected. But we are understanding that um, exposure to eggs in the environment is going to be much more common than we really think. And so the important takeaways from our research is that um, really breaking the cycle, so breaking the wild, breaking cats from hunting wildlife, because that's what's perpetuating the cycle, mm-hmm. breaking them, the kind of habit of them defecating um, off properties so where people don't realize that they're species, um, and allowing those species to kind of get into the environment, retaining habitat, because healthy soils, vegetation, um, basically percolates these eggs out from the soil surface where um, animals and people can be exposed and also where runoff, like we're seeing with these big floods, you can prevent the uses from getting into our rivers, into our oceans, which can be a big problem as well. So kind of approaching this public health problem with a conservation message, kind of a simple thing, breaking the cycle of hunting for cats. Because as you know, they have a huge um, ecological impact, the predation. And we're also seeing now that they're also spreading disease to wildlife as well. And also by secondarily us as, as too. Then also, too, the feline welfare is going to be marginalized for outdoor cats. And we do have a lot of options, too. So it's not the dichotomy that we used to think, kind of indoor-outdoor. Right. Harness training, catios, uh, feral cat sanctuaries, that is better for cats. Um, so I think there's a lot. They're very stoic animals, for sure. But I can tell you as a veterinarian, it's not a healthy choice for them. It's not, it's not the best. So we want to see engaged owners. We want to see them out in there, you know, with their harness training, really seeing what cats are capable of. So this whole thing is not an anti-cat message. It's a pro-cat message. Kind of bringing on responsible pet ownership, engaged cat ownership um, is really important. Okay, fascinating. And it opens up a whole new avenue of discussion on the, the indoor versus outdoor cat uh, d- debate. Because I, I think a lot of us would thought, would think immediately about bird predation or cats that are defecating in your garden and that's not pleasant. But now you've got this, this potential illness that can, that can spread. To, so this can spread to humans, right? And, and what kind of, like when people get this, this parasite, what kind of impact can that have on your health? So if you're immunocompromised, um, so if you have a, an illness, um, then there's a significant health impact. And this is really something that concerned people need to talk to their doctors about because I'm just a veterinarian. Um, so I'm just relaying to you what I've seen in the medical literature. 
So, like I said, there can be, you know, significant mortality if people are very sick from something like HIV, cancer treatment, immunocompromised. But again, talking to your doctor is important. We've known for a long time that there can be severe consequences for babies that are infected in the womb. So they can have kind of lifelong deficiencies from that. Um, but now it's even more research is coming out that even for healthy individuals, these infections are, for, are lifelong. So you can have cysts in your muscle tissue or in your brain for your entire life. And studies are showing disturbing associations between these chronic infections and some serious neurologic diseases like schizophrenia, Alzheimer's, and brain cancer. So really the kind of emerging um, research kind of consensus is this is not a parasite that is a benign thing. We do not we want to avoid it if we can. Um, like I said, most people, if, if they had a healthy system, a healthy immune system would be able to kind of have a mild flu symptom, but they still have this persistent infection that could be a problem later on in life. And again, concerned people really not need to talk to your doctor about the possible risks um, because your doctor is the best person to advise about the health risks. Speaking to Dr. Amy Wilson from UBC, she's a veterinarian, and I, I find the issue fascinating for sure. Now, when you talk about the, the risk of outdoor cats spreading this parasite potentially to humans and, and other animals, what about indoor cats? I mean, is the risk a lot less with indoor cats, or there's still some risk of this parasite from an indoor cat too? Absolutely, because even if a cat has um, toxoplasma, its risk of shedding is going to be very low. Um, basically, we don't want to re-expose. We don't want the cat to get exposed to toxo because it would shed at that point, and we don't want it to be re-exposed to uh, infected prey again. So it can shed. Sometimes they can have a period where they're immune, so they will not shed the parasite. But again, it's just kind of breaking the life cycle. So if you have an indoor cat they're not hunting, you have a very low likelihood of being exposed. That's just kind of re-emphasizing. Thanks, Mike. It's not the cats. It's the cats hunting wildlife and precipitating this life cycle. So if you have an indoor cat, even if you have a harness-trained out cat, your risk is going to be much lower. Um, So there's kind of regular, like, um, you know, litter box hygiene, changing it every couple days, your risk is going to be low for this. So therefore, Dr. Wilson, you would say outdoor cat's not a good idea. You should keep your cat indoors. 100%, without a doubt. It's better for the cats. And like I said, outdoor cats transitioning um, to harness training, catios. And I think a lot of people that I've spoken to want to do this. And I think veterinarians were getting better at understanding how to help them through that, how to help them transition and giving them good advice. And like I said, it doesn't have to be a dichotomy. I like to basically telling people we're just asking and offering the same things we do for dog owners. You know, everything we're asking right. for a cat owner is nothing more and nothing less than dogs. And I just see the benefit and the bond that people have with their dogs. And I want to see that between people and their cats as well. You just have to look online, like adventurecat.org or kind of mm-hmm. Google cat, cats on harnesses. It's enabling cats to be valued and bringing them up to the same level as dogs. But just the freedom and the safety um, is uh, fantastic. So I'm really okay. excited about the benefits. Okay, it's been, it's been great to talk to you today. Thank you very much for coming on to talk about the study today. I appreciate it a lot. Yeah, no, I look forward to seeing more artist trained cats. <laughs> All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about pipeline problems in British Columbia now. There are lots of troubles out there with the pipeline operations and expansion in our province at the moment. Just taking a look at uh, the state, latest statement from the Trans Mountain Pipeline uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline is shut down due to impacts from the flooding and the storm surges that we saw, the, the landslides. Trans Mountain is conducting an assessment of the system by air and ground about when to restart the system. Also, the expansion of the current Trans Mountain Pipeline 
also impacted by the flooding disasters that we see in our province. Meanwhile, in northern BC, the Coastal Gas Link natural gas pipeline, there is a blockade that has been set up there. Uh, members of the Gitintan clan of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation and their hereditary chiefs who are opposed to this project set up a blockade and approximately 500 pipeline workers effectively trapped behind that blockade. Let's discuss now with my guests. We've got a great panel for you on this. Chris Sankey is the president of the Blackfish Group of Companies. Chris is a former elected councillor with the Laxqualam First Nation and Prince Rupert. Chris, thank you for being here again. Thank you for having me. You bet, Chris. Thank you. Peter McCartney, also on the line, climate change campaigner with the Wilderness Committee. Hey, Peter. Hey, thanks for having me. Okay, gentlemen, thank you to both of you being here. Peter, let me go to you first with the Trans Mountain Pipeline shut down, the Coastal Gasoline Pipeline behind a blockade. You've been very critical of these projects. Are you happy that these projects are experiencing these type of delays right now? Well, I mean, I don't know that uh, having climate disasters shut your pipeline down for you is uh, the right way to go about anything. But, um, I mean, it it does mean that there are more delays facing the Trans Mountain Project, and we know that the project is already woefully behind schedule and massively over cost. And so uh, I think this should just be uh, yet another reason for the federal government to take another look at this project, know that it's financially underwater because it's so delayed, and uh, and decide to abandon the project and focus on uh, the transition to renewable energy. What about the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline? Do you think that should be stopped too? Yeah, I mean, the, the folks out on the ground have been pretty clear, um, you know, the, the hereditary chiefs, that this pipeline doesn't have the consent to go through their territory. And so, you know, they're, they're exercising their authority to uh, decide what happens on their territory. So, yeah, I mean, I think uh, ultimately these fossil fuel projects are are taking us in the wrong direction we know that we have uh, the sooner we stop burning fossil fuels uh the sooner these floods storms heat waves wildfires droughts will stop getting worse and they're going to keep getting worse until we do that okay. and so lng takes us in the wrong direction okay chris sankey chris is an indigenous leader in british columbia he also su- supports a lot of these projects chris your thoughts well, no, first of all, it's unfortunate what happened uh, in the Fraser Valley area. I think it's common sense and smart business-wise to shut things down, to reassess, to make sure people are safe, first and foremost. <clears throat> Secondly, that project is continuing to move forward with the consent of Indigenous communities, both on the TMX and Coastal Gas Link. Uh, pertaining to the Coastal Gas Link, they've had 20 communities in favour of the project. They've all signed on. There is a small faction that needs to resolve their differences in-house. Neither both of us on this phone call has the say or wherewithal to go in there and tell the, that, that one group uh, what to say or do. That has to come from the actual people of the community first. Um, it's extremely misleading to, uh, to the public of what's actually going on up there. I know the individual who is negotiating to come to a peaceful resolution uh, in the area. And unfortunately, those talks uh, were not held up. Uh, agreements were not held up. And now you got 500 workers that are in danger and their safety is jeopardized. And look, at the end of the day, nobody wants to destroy the environment on behalf of development. And the reality is, Mike, is that by 2050, there'll be another billion people on the planet. Every single one of us give us 
uh, about a thousand BTUs per day, every day. Uh, it, this Canada's 1.6 uh, total GHG emissions globally. Uh, shutting this down where there's been no development, first of all, zero development in Canada, can't constitute the right to blame Canada for all the stuff that's happening. It's just not, that it, 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 it would be an incorrect statement. That's just not what's, you can't Do blame you? this on development. It's just, there's no, it's no facts to that. Hey, Chris, let me ask you real quickly about those 500 workers up there you, that are behind this blockade on that coastal gas link pipeline. You said they're in danger. How are they in danger up there? Do you know? Well, you can't get in and out. I mean, the safety yeah. of all workers, it doesn't have to be the workers, the people that use the roads. I mean, if you can't get out to get to get home, <clears throat> make phone calls or get home safely because of the risk of trying to go past a blockade that's preventing you from leaving, that's dangerous. Okay. And we talk about safety. Well, I mean, we got to be safe on both sides. I mean, nobody wants to see uh, people drop the gloves here. It's, it's unacceptable. Okay, Peter, let me go back to Peter McCartney. Peter, you heard you heard Chris make the case that these pipeline projects are actually supported by First Nations along along the route. There is some opposition, but I mean, how do you characterize the opposite as particularly the indigenous opposition to these projects? I mean, if you've got the elected band councils that are immediately affected by these projects and they sign onto it, are you saying that's not that's not adequate consent from indigenous people or, or You know, what? it's Really not for me to uh, speak for the folks who have opposed these pipelines on the ground. Um, there are definitely First Nations communities uh, who are in support of these projects. There are communities that have benefits agreements. Um, there are also divides within communities. I think every every Indigenous community is having their own conversation about this, just like we all are otherwise. And so you can't expect everybody to be on the same page. Um, but especially with regards to Trans Mountain, I mean, the, the Tsleilwethith, who have, bear the most risk from this project, have absolutely categorically said they will uh, will oppose it with every ounce of their strength, that the elected council and their, uh, you know, family leadership, and they... Uh, the government hasn't taken that and and into consideration and hasn't uh, listened to them. Do you and think so what do you what do you think about Chris's argument, Peter? That you know when you take a look at climate change patterns ar- around the world and population growth, I mean, you know, is it realistic? Like you said, okay, we just got to stop fossil fuel consumption, and then we can stop these landslides and floods and, and fires. Is, is it really realistic to do that? Like you can't, you just you can't turn off, you can't turn this off like a switch. You definitely can't turn it off in the switch, and nobody is saying that we just have to stop everything tomorrow. Um, but we have very clear timelines. We need to be uh, consuming globally 3% less natural gas next year than we did this year and every year going forward. Um, and the truth is these climate impacts that we're already seeing are getting worse. So, you know, we have all of the technologies that we need currently available to make this transition, the thing that we're lacking is political will. And okay. so to say it's unrealistic to make this transition, it's unrealistic not to. We're not just going to keep letting our communities um, be wiped out at, at, at the rate that they're currently ha- happening from these climate disasters. Chris Sankey, what do you say to that? Well, look, uh, at the end of the day, um, we got to make sure people are safe. But uh, in order for us to combat climate change, it's, it's new technology and innovation that's going to combat that. Like the studies have come out, the IEA also predicted that in order to meet demand of oil and gas, you'll have to invest another $20 trillion. No one is disputing the fact 
that we have to go to a cleaner fuel processing system. It's it, We have to. Everybody wants to look after the environment. However, look, at the end of the day, even with the increase of wind farms and solar, there is not enough material in the world to, to actually accommodate that. Now, no, new technologies are getting better. They're even getting better in the coal processing. However, when you take a look at Amazon, Canadian Tire, Walmart, all these major giants that use petroleum products every day, it's extremely difficult for me to believe that you're getting off fossil fuels any time in my lifetime. Uh, I hope maybe one day during my children's children's lifetime, but it's just not going to happen. Uh, and the problem okay. is right now is we're not keeping up to the speed of the people that want the transition to happen. There's just not enough infrastructure, and that's what's key to, in order to combat okay. climate change. All right, welcome back to the show. As we continue talking about pipeline troubles in British Columbia, the Trans Mountain Pipeline is shut down because of the flooding. There is a barricade, a blockade for construction of the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline. 800 workers trapped behind that blockade right now. Chris Sankey and Peter McCartney are my guests. Let's go to your phone calls here. Dan calling from Vancouver Island. Hi, Dan. Oh, hi. Thanks for taking my call. I'll make it quick. Um, you're, one of your guests there lives in a green fantasy land, which is not based in reality. I just got gas. And people are arguing. Uh, I, I, we almost had to break up a fight. This is just what's, what's, what's happened uh, recently. We, how are people going to operate businesses? How are people going to heat their homes? Uh, and, and by the way, uh, to this Mr. Green fellow here, where are the trillions of dollars going to come from? For all this, uh, why were hey, why, hey Dan, hey Dan, why were people fighting when you you saw someone gas fighting shortages. at a gas gas shortage? Gas wow. shortages. Yeah, where did you see that? Uh, here on the island, they've already shut some some gas stations. Have already shut down. Okay, Peter McCartney. Yeah, I'm having a bit of trouble hearing uh, the guests there, but um, you know, to, to call this a fantasy, uh, Chris mentioned Amazon earlier. Amazon is building uh, or buying power from the largest solar project in Canada in Vulcan, Alberta, right now. This is happening, and we we don't have a choice. We can't wait until you know the next next generation. Scientists tell us that these climate impacts that we're already seeing will continue to get worse until we stop burning fossil fuels. And and so that has to happen in the next 30 years. And the, the good news is, is that it is happening all around us. We are making that transition. Okay. Um, and we just need to, to really go all in. Chris. I, look, I, no one's disagreeing that the transition in terms of transformation, the way I like to phrase it, uh, has to happen. It's a combination of sustainable development uh, initiatives with the oil and gas sector. The, the oil industry and the gas industry is way ahead. In fact, uh, it, it's actually a known fact in order to meet these climate change targets, uh, to meet the Paris Accord, Canada has to look at electrifying LNG and they need to be building four of these to meet those demands. But look, the, the first caller there is right. I mean, our gas prices completely inflated. It, well, inflation went up because of it transportation, food. I know individuals, in particular from my community and others in the area here in British Columbia across Canada, have to pick and choose and watch what they're buying in order to pay the hydro bill. That's just crazy. Uh, it, okay. look, I mean, we, we got to be smart about this. we got to have some common sense and critical thinking combined with innovation and technology. That's how we're going to combat climate change. But I, I'm fully aware of what Amazon is trying to do. But if you take a look, you do the research. At the end of the day, the demand for this product, for oil and gas, which is the cleanest in the world in Canada, both oil and gas, is going to go up or relatively stay the same by 2040. Okay, let's go to back to the phone lines. John calling in Vancouver. Hi, John. 
I, I, uh, I agree with both these gentlemen. I think they both have very valid points. And I believe that if government would stop kicking the ball down the road and just make policy, that innovation would step up and make these things happen. We just made a vaccine in months, which took years yeah. last time we had to do one. So, you know, stop kicking the ball down the road. Okay, Peter, what would you say to that? Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. We should be addressing the climate crisis with the same urgency uh, that we were addressing the pandemic with. Uh, and we could do, like, nobody expected us to have this vaccine in a matter of months. Uh, and yet here we are, right? And so we can do this if we put our minds to it. I fully believe that, you know, humanity is capable of solving this problem. We just have to actually decide to act. And with regards to inflation, I just want to say, you know, a quarter, over a quarter of Canadians' crops, uh, farmers' crops this year, died because of the drought that Canada was in. We just had the area that produces a quarter of our, uh, or half of the dairy and chicken for British Columbia is underwater. Food prices are going up because of climate change, and that is the base thing that no one can, uh, you know, mm. drive less. You can't just eat less. And so if we want to talk about inflation, we cannot be talking about rising grocery bills without talking about climate change as well. Okay, squeeze in one more call here. Brian in Coquitlam. Hi, Brian, go ahead. Hey, so here's, here's the issue. Uh, energy demand is not going to go down. It's going to continue to go up. You have billions of people in climates that are getting warmer, and they're going to need AC, like in India and China. And in places that are cold or getting colder, they're going to need more warming. Between 2000 and 2020, we added 2 billion people to the planet. What we need to do is invest technology in carbon extraction from the atmosphere. We already have the tech. It's just very expensive to, to operate it and to make it work. Okay. But that's okay. the Thank only solution. Thank you for that. I, you know, I hear this often, Peter, about you know, uh, technology to extract carbon from the air. Is that possible? It is possible, and we are doing it. Uh, it's, you know, not something we should rest our, our laurels on. Unfortunately, we are so far down the path of climate change that we will need some technology to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. But that doesn't okay. mean that we can, uh, we can allow continue to do things uh, because we would need 12 of these plants each a thousand times the size of the one in Squamish to discount for the for the gas industry's current okay. impact on the climate. Chris Sankey, I'll give you the last word. You got 30 seconds there. Chris, go ahead. Look, we got to look at nuclear. We got to look at these sustainable development projects. You have to understand that a lot of this stuff is, is powered, powered by hydro. Uh, at the end of the day, no one's disputing the fact that it, together we need to work with both innovation and technology in the oil and gas sector. The oil and gas okay. sector themselves have been ahead of this game for a while, and I, I think there's got to be some credit put there because without them, sustainable, sustainable development is not possible.